In any case, Jesus' mother immediately is on center stage in this little drama. Somehow she knew the very moment that the wine had run out. The first time any character speaks in this episode, it is Jesus' mother. She says simply, they have no wine. The Bible is full of stories that we all know and love. But how well do we know them? The answer might surprise you. The Bible you thought you knew is going to dive deep into the exquisite details of the biblical stories that make them fascinating and transforming. In today's podcast, we will do a little change of pace by dealing with a well-known story from the New Testament. I'm referring to the episode in which Jesus is at a wedding and changes water into wine. Unique to the Gospel of John, the episode is found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. As stories go, this one seems straightforward. It has no plot twists, odd characters, or enigmatic features. This incident is one in which someone who does not know the Bible all that well would be comfortable in rehearsing. Most people have heard a sermon on this text or a Sunday school lesson or are aware that it is famous enough to be the source of countless jokes about Jesus making sure that a party did not run out of adult beverages. If you are anything like me, you probably thought of the story something along these lines. Jesus is invited to a wedding in which friends, acquaintances, or even family are present. Typically, a preacher or Sunday school teacher at this point supplies details about weddings in the ancient Near East. They were gala affairs, hospitality was paramount, and involved not only obviously a bride and groom, but a meshing of families, usually extended families. Of course, even a wedding put on by people who were not well off would want to ensure that their guests were fed sumptuously and had plenty to drink it would have been utterly embarrassing to run out of either food or drink. When Jesus realized that the wine had run out, he stepped up to save the day. Being who he was, that is, no stranger to performing miraculous deeds, he turned a great deal of water into a great deal of wine. The wedding was saved, the party could go on, the hosts avoided humiliation, and the guests expressed their appreciation by giving Jesus a standing ovation. That scene, or something very close to it, has stuck in my imagination for the longest time. I am guessing that your experience with this incident does not venture too far from that description. Do the details of this text make any difference to this summary? I think they do. Once more, the details indicate that more is going on than the sketch I outlined. Not only does my brief description not do justice to the incident, it leaves out important elements. Let us go through the story slowly, savoring each detail to determine the import of this brief but crucial incident in Jesus' life. Right off the bat, the narrative tells us that the wedding took place on the third day. When had this count begun? Three days from what point? 
This is the second chapter of a book that starts with the statement, in the beginning. But that was part of the prologue to this gospel. The narrative proper begins in chapter 1, verse 19, when Jews send folk to question John the baptizer. That, of course, would be day one. The next day, day two, is found in verse 29 of the same chapter, when John refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Then the next day is the time when John repeats the Lamb of God phrase in verse 35. That means that in the Gospel's chronological framework, the wedding took place on the fourth day. Does this suggest that only two days are indicated in chapter 1, or that the time is calculated from the time when Jesus called his disciples in verse 35? Might it be that the third day reference is to be understood symbolically? A seemingly mundane temporal reference already indicates that there is more to this episode than meets the eye. As well, It should not be lost on us that, according to this gospel, Jesus inaugurated his public ministry at this wedding. So far, Jesus has only spoken to disciples. He has not yet acted. Actions are part and parcel of prophetic activity, and in several places, Jesus is identified as a prophet in this gospel. That happens in chapter 4 verses 19 and 44, chapter 6, verse 14, chapter 7, verse 40 and 52, and chapter 9, verse 17. This also means that, according to John, Jesus changing the water into wine was his very first miracle, or to be more precise, sign, a term which this gospel uses to refer to Jesus' performing of miracles. The narration says as much in verse 11 of chapter 2. Doing something like this at the very beginning of his public ministry makes it more momentous. The next thing to notice in this brief account is often ignored. It is no big deal that the wedding site was Cana in Galilee. Jesus had gone back to Galilee after being in the environs of Jerusalem but it is interesting that only Jesus' mother is mentioned at first of being a guest at the wedding. Even more interesting is the fact that Jesus' mother is not named. Indeed, not once in John's Gospel is Jesus' mother named. Were it not for Matthew and Luke, we would not know that Mary was the name of Jesus' mother. Given the mother's role in this episode, This is quite curious. Equally curious is that when we are told that Jesus and his disciples attended the wedding, the text adds the word also. It is as though Jesus' mother was the main invitee, whereas Jesus and his disciples were something of an afterthought. Some commentators have opined that the addition of Jesus and his disciples explained why the quantity of wine was insufficient. The caterer had not ordered enough wine for the inflated guest list. One cannot be sure of this interpretation, but it is intriguing to contemplate. In any case, Jesus' mother immediately is on center stage 
in this little drama. Somehow she knew the very moment that the wine had run out. The first time any character speaks in this episode, it is Jesus' mother. She says simply, they have no wine. It is unclear whether the they in this sentence refers to the hosts or the ones in charge of refreshments or both. It is clear, though, that there is no more wine to serve. How did Jesus' mother know this in the first place? No answer is given. How is it that she seems to be the only guest who realized this? Again, there is no way to know. Presumably, except for those in charge of the wine, only Jesus' mother knew about this disaster in the making. Why did she tell Jesus about this? Was this small talk as though to say, Oh my goodness, they are out of wine? Or did she think Jesus would care for other reasons? More importantly, did she tell Jesus about the wine because she believed he would do something about the situation? Once more, we are left with questions, but no answers. This is one cryptic text. Jesus' response to his mother's statement is puzzling, too. He addresses his mother as woman, which is jarring to our ears. Did this term convey a tinge of disrespect? Probably not. Indeed, Jesus addresses his mother in the same way later on in this gospel when he was on the cross and arranging for one of his disciples to care for her. This form of address might be the equivalent of our English word ma'am. However, though Jesus was not disrespectful in using that terminology, what he still said next almost certainly would not have thrilled her. He remarked, What does that have to do with me and you? My hour is not yet here. That certainly sounds dismissive. Jesus seems not to give a fig that the wedding's wine supply is depleted or that he, or his mother, should worry about this circumstance in the least. In short, Jesus appears to be saying, in effect, Ma'am, the fact that they have no wine is none of my or your business. But that is too easy, and it does not deal with everything that Jesus said. The whole sentence was, Ma'am, what is that to me and you? My hour has not yet come. The last part of Jesus' statement is decisive. Why? Because reference to Jesus' hour is pregnant with meaning in this gospel. In fact, it is a shorthand way of pointing to his passion and his glorious resurrection. This is indicated throughout John's Gospel. In chapter 4, verses 21 and 23, chapter 5, verses 25 and 28, chapter 7, verse 30, chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 12, verse 23 and 27, chapter 13, verse 1, chapter 16, verse 25, and chapter 17, verse 1. In a couple of instances, Jesus' coming hour is joined to the concept of glory or glorification, just as it is later in this text, as we shall see. Regardless of whether Jesus' mother had an inkling of such lofty theological concepts, 
or was merely pointing out nothing more than a wedding party was about to be embarrassed does not matter. Jesus takes what she says as being enormously significant. Indeed, his mother intuits that this is more than an ordinary happenstance. Completely ignoring Jesus' deflection of what she had said, she turned to the servants and declared, as though she were in charge, do whatever he says to you. Jesus was famously obedient to his heavenly Father, not only in this gospel, but in the other three gospels too. In this instance, however, he is about to obey his earthly mother. Jesus' unnamed mother is orchestrating what he does at this wedding. The question is, given Jesus' initial response, why did he comply with his mother's wishes? Was this a matter of mother knows best? Had Jesus reconsidered the opportunity that a wedding without wine affords? Had his mother's persistence led him to rethink the whole situation and whether he had been too rash in brushing her off? The narrative tantalizes us to probe with such questions, but leaves us without any answers to them. Not only do we not get an inkling of what changed Jesus' mind, we are at this point presented with seemingly extraneous information. In a kind of footnote, we learn that at the wedding site, there were six stone jars present, each of them having the capacity of holding 20 or 30 gallons of water. Further, we are told that this water was used for Jewish purification rites. Does this suggest that the wedding was being held at a priest's home or a rabbi's? Was the wedding being held at a place where Jews worshipped? Again, we cannot say. Jesus, at this juncture, gives the servants a simple order. Fill the jars with water. Once more, we are stunned at the unfolding scene. Who does this woman think she is by telling the servants to listen to Jesus? And how does he get off by ordering the servants to fill the jars with water? Oddly, not a word is mentioned about the logistics of filling six large jars with water. It is not as though they could go to the faucet and attach a garden hose. Water had to be fetched at a well, typically at a fair distance. Getting a day's worth of water would have been an arduous daily chore in that time and place. Regardless of the absence of detail of what was required to do Jesus' bidding, the servants follow his instructions to a tee and fill the jars to the brim. Suddenly, Jesus is facing six jars with somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of water. It is delicious to imagine this scene. Jesus follows this order with a second one. Now draw some out and take it to the chief caterer. The servants did exactly what they were told. Of course, only the servants who brought the wine to the steward knew that they were bringing wine that just a moment before had been ordinary water. The chief caterer was in the dark, but he brightened when he tasted the wine. 
he found the taste remarkable enough to go to the groom and make a wry comment. Apparently, this man had catered many weddings. Thus, he knew the drill. With any large crowd, the best wine would be served first. The operative assumption is that once the guests had the good wine under their belts, the alcohol they had already consumed would make them less discriminating with subsequent pours. Therefore, upon tasting the wine just brought to him, he called the groom and remarked how unusual it was for a host to serve the best wine last. Jesus not only provided wine for a wedding party which had moments before run out, he also produced a superior vintage. The chief caterer said so, and he would have known. The story concludes with an editorial comment of sorts. First, we are told that this was Jesus' first sign in Cana of Galilee, and for that matter, the first sign performed in this gospel. That alone underscores its significance. Second, we are informed that this sign manifested Jesus' glory. As we saw earlier, Jesus' glory is connected to his coming hour, which combines Jesus' passion and resurrection. In every gospel, this one included, Jesus' passion and resurrection is the climax of God's acting in and through Jesus the Christ. Thus, this was no run-of-the-mill miracle, if there is such a thing, but a sign full of cosmic significance. Third and finally, the narration makes us realize that the disciples believed in Jesus because of this action. That is amazing. Only the disciples were said to have believed. The narration says nothing about any guests who believed, or the servants who fetched the water and drew out the wine, or the bride, or the groom. As public an event as this is portrayed to be, the disciples alone were affected. It turns out that this was a sign that had the inner circle exclusively in mind. Why? Well, the answer to that question lies in what the steward had said about the wine when he first tasted it. Keep in mind that he was not amazed that wine had been found after a frantic surge, or had been miraculously produced, or that Jesus was behind this stunning event. The servants brought him wine from an undisclosed source. He tasted it and immediately realized its quality. So how should we understand this scene within the story? The man complimented the groom for saving the good wine for now. That suggests the highest moment of the wedding. Though the chief caterer had not realized where the wine originated, we know, for the narration told us in a kind of aside. These jars were typically used for Jewish rites of purification, That is, they were part of a vital Jewish religious ceremony. The water in those jars fit the requirements for those rites just fine. But that water had been replaced with something better. That something better was related to Jesus' passion and resurrection. The story is not designed to denigrate Jewish rites of purification, 
but to announce that God is doing something new and better in Jesus. Please do not confuse this with Christianity somehow replacing Judaism. First off, there was no Judaism as such during Jesus' day, or for that matter, there was no Christianity in Jesus' day. Rather, there were myriad Jewish religious expressions. Secondly, Jesus, as a good Jew, affirmed a majority of Jewish religious expressions. At the same time, he saw his hour and its accompanying glorification as the climax of what God had been doing since the call of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 12. He symbolized this in his changing water into wine, good wine, saved for the last poor. The disciples realized this. They believed. This was only the first sign to be sure, but what a sign it was. Jesus' unnamed mother was on to something after all. Jesus' hour was on the way. I want to thank you so very much for listening to The Bible You Thought You Knew. I have a question for you. Do you have a question or topic that you'd like me to cover on the podcast? If so, all you need to do is head over to Apple Podcasts and do two simple things. One, leave a rating and review telling me what you think of the podcast. Two, in that review, ask anything you want related to the Bible. That's all you have to do. Then, listen in to hear your question answered on a future episode. Join us next time on The Bible You Thought You Knew when we discuss Jesus' personal Bible. God bless.